You're listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. We're going to, be in a, we're going to look at a really familiar story. Well, it's familiar if you've been around the church for a while. Um, we're going to tell it in a slightly different way, but we'll get there in a minute. Last week, we looked at the question, do I have to believe everything? Do I have to believe everything that Christians believe? And we came to this conclusion that although there are, there are many secondary and tertiary issues and doctrines that Christians do disagree about, and that's okay, there are primary doctrines that we cannot deny actively and ongoing and still be Christians in a meaningful sense. This week, we're going to ask a related question, and it's this. Do I have to obey everything the Bible commands? It's one thing to say that I believe the Bible. It's another thing to actually live out and do what the Bible teaches, especially when the Bible itself is actually, as you might know, a library of 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years. I remember when I was a kid, when I was first learning about the Bible, didn't have the, uh, you know, the excellent Lego illustration, but we did have a couple of songs. We sang about the, you know, the B-I-B-L-E, that's, that's the book for me. Did you guys grow up singing that one? Or, or maybe uh, you learned the, uh, the little phrase using the letters of the word Bible. The, the Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. Did you get, some of you have heard that before? Okay. Go to, that's what you get when you go to like Bible camp. Um, there's a lot of assumptions that I think that people have about what the Bible is and, and, and what it does. Um, a lot of people think that the Bible is a bit like a rule book, and there are rules and instructions in the Bible. Um, if you think that the Bible is only a book of rules, though, you, you, you start reading and you start flicking through it, and, and you're like, man, there's, there's a lot of other stuff in here, too. Because you think if it was only a book of rules, it might start out with thou shalt do such and such or thou shalt not do such and such. And there is a bit of that in there, but that's not how it starts. Uh, the, um, if, if it was just a, a book of laws, you'd think it maybe, maybe it would start a little bit like the Australian Constitution, which starts with the word whereas. You know, it's going to be a very interesting read. But the Bible starts with a different phrase. It starts with the phrase in the beginning, which is a little bit like saying once upon a time. The Bible is actually a story. Now, it's not only a story. There are rules. There are poems. There are visions and interesting biography within the story. But if you could generalize, I think the best way to generalize what the Bible is It's a story of how God made the universe and how he's remaking the universe through the person and work of his son, Jesus. The Bible's made up of all kinds of different literature. There are stories of epic battles. There are lists of names that you have to go to Bible college to learn how to pronounce. There's laws. There's ancient customs. There's poetry. There's symbolism that has inspired countless artists over the years. And at the center of all of it is Jesus, who came to earth just as God promised that he would. Jesus who lived to show his friends and the world that he was the promised one, the one that was promised in the scriptures. And then he died in the place of sinners before three days later, defeating death and rising 
from the grave. At the very end of the Bible, we have a, a vision of Jesus, risen, glorified, powerful, who promises that he will one day come back again and usher in his kingdom and make everything right, restore everything that has been lost and broken by sin, and that all of his people, all of his people from every corner of the globe and every era of history will live with him in peace and joy forever. But then in the meantime, what do we do with those parts of the Bible that seem to be telling us how to live now? How do we, if we could put it this way, how do we pick and choose which bits of the Bible we're meant to obey now while we wait? We're not the first generation of God's people who have kind of wrestled with this question. How do we read certain parts of the Bible? And I'm going to spend the first part of the message today, as I said, reading a very familiar story in the Gospel of Luke, where we see a really smart man asking basically the same question that we're asking today. Do I have to obey everything in the Bible? Or are there some parts we can safely ignore? Is there some parts that were, you know, for back then, but not for now? So I'm going to draw out some application from this familiar story as to how we read and obey the commands of the Bible today. So Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. This is the story uh, known as the Good Samaritan. And it goes like this. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, that's Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you'll live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. And then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the timeless truth that is here. And so God, I, we're asking this question about your word that you've given us? Which parts of it are, are, are meant for us? Which parts of it are, ought we to obey? Ought we to meditate on? Ought we to think about and conform ourselves to? And we need help to answer this question. And so would you help us now? Would you open our eyes and our hearts um, to, to see you and to, to do what you would have us do? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This parable or story of the, of the Good Samaritan is one of the most familiar passages in the whole Bible. Um, I would say that most people who have no idea what a Samaritan is would still have heard the phrase, a Good Samaritan. You know what a Good Samaritan is? 
A good Samaritan is someone who goes out of their way to be generous or kind um, to someone in need or someone in an emergency situation. Uh, we have in our, in our laws in different countries what are called Good Samaritan laws, which is a Good Samaritan law is that if, you, if there's an emergency or you see someone in trouble, you see someone that's in a life-threatening situation and you go to render aid to that person, you will not be held liable if you accidentally do something that causes harm to that person, say if you're giving CPR. Um, that's a Good Samaritan Law. The reason these laws exist is because we as a society, we want to encourage people to be good Samaritans, to go out and render assistance when they can in an emergency. But why did Jesus tell this story in the first place? It was in response to a question from a so-called expert in the law, a lawyer, a lawyer. The expert, the lawyer asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I live forever? What do I have to do? And, and maybe it was a genuine question. Maybe. We see the same question, if you know the story, in Mark chapter 10 of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler asked the very same question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and if, you, if you know how Jesus responds to that question, he deals with the rich young ruler in a particular way. It says he looked at him and he loved him. And then he got him to sort of rehearse the commandments. The, rehearse the law. And then he says, just one thing that you lack, go sell everything that you have, give to the poor, and then come follow me, and you can be my disciple. And of course, we know the story that the young man couldn't. He couldn't give up his riches, and so he went away sad. But Jesus loved him in that interaction. Now, this interaction is a bit different. He doesn't tell the man to do anything. Instead, he tells a story when he asks a question. You kind of get the impression that the, the question probably wasn't all that genuine. He's, he's, he's probably trying to make Jesus look bad or get him in trouble in some way. And Jesus responds to his question with a question. You tell me, what do you think the law says? What do you think it says about who can inherit eternal life? Um, I pointed out last week, there's that, this verse in Leviticus 18. It's quoted several times in the New Testament. Moses there wrote these words. He said, keep my statutes and ordinances, all of them. Obey all of them. A person will live if he does them. So, so that's how you get eternal life, according to Moses. And under the Mosaic covenant, you keep all the rules and you'll live. You break any of the rules, you will die. It's, it's very simple. So the lawyer's question is really what he's asking. He's saying, which ones of the laws, which of the statutes and the ordinances must I keep to live forever? Do I really have to obey all of them or just the big ones? The lawyer's probably hoping, like I think we would, that it's just the big ones. Because there's over 600 rules, commands in the Old Testament. So which ones? Which ones? Can I, can I kind of cut corners on any of them? And, and he comes back with, here, well, he knows what the big ones are. He's love God with your whole heart and love your neighbor as yourself. It's what a pastor who I appreciate has called double love or love squared. Love God, love your neighbor, and you'll inherit life. And you might think that's overly simplistic, but then Jesus, um, you know, elsewhere says those two commands sum up all of the other 600. They all kind of hang on those two. 
And Jesus says in verse 28, he says, actually, you're correct. You answered right. Do this. Love God, love your neighbor, and you will live. Amazing. Lawyers seem to think that answer maybe was a little bit too simplistic. Maybe he's a lawyer, so he's always looking for fine print. What's the catch? What's the hidden clause here? And so he fires back to Jesus another question in verse 29. He says, but who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Luke tells us that the lawyer was not really asking this question as to, you know, in order to understand how to love better. He was asking, he says, to justify himself. He was looking for something that he could point to and say, aha, I've done that. You can't punish me because I've done what you asked me to do. His attitude's a little bit like if you know the story of the prodigal son, another familiar story in Luke 15. You have the two brothers. One of them is disobedient to start with, goes off and squanders all of his, his inheritance and then comes back and he apologizes and sort of gets down and says, I, I want a second chance uh, to his father. The older son, the older brother in the story, never goes off. Never, he's, he's working his whole life. He's very conscientious. He's very obedient on the surface. And when, the fa- when he realizes that his father is merciful and forgiving to his younger brother, he says this. He complains. He says, look, I have been slaving many years for you. I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat that I can celebrate with my friends. See, that's what it means to justify yourself. It's to, 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 obey, or to obey the minimum amount that you can get away with so that you can look to God or you can look to the boss or whoever it is and say, look, see, I did what you told me to do. Now give me what's mine. That, that's, what, that's the attitude that this lawyer has. It's the attitude of the older brother. It's the attitude of looking to God or whoever and saying, see, I've earned this. Now, here's what gets me about Jesus in this interaction. Notice what he doesn't do with this lawyer. Jesus doesn't, like, when he says, who is my neighbor, because he's wanting to justify himself, he doesn't pull out his Bible, open up to Moses, and say, just start going through all 600 commands and say, hey, what about this one? Did you keep this one? Are you sure? Are you telling me you never once told a lie? You've never borne false witness? You've never coveted anything? Really? Really, you've, no, he doesn't do that. He does not do that. He, um, instead, he, he takes his torch, his well, metaphorical torch, and instead of shining it on some long-forgotten part of the Bible, he takes his, the torch and he shines it on the man's heart. And how does he do that? He tells a story. He tells a story. He's saying, I'm not going to trip you up on a technicality. I'm, I'm going to get to the very heart of what obedience means. And so here's the story in a nutshell. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell it maybe slightly differently than you've heard it before. Here's the story that Jesus tells. He, 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 he tells a story of a man who's, who goes on a trip. This man has a four-wheel drive, and he's going to drive out into the outback. He's going to go up the Unadada track into the desert, but he runs into trouble, not before long. He gets stranded. He's out of fuel, out of food, out of water, and there's no mobile reception. Till on the horizon, he makes out a little red flag 
coming and getting closer and then realizes it's another four-wheel drive. He's saved. He's saved. In this four-wheel drive, he, he, he looks in, and, and he, I guess he's just got a good sense of who, who the people are inside, but it happens to be a church pastor and his family. But sadly, the car just keeps on driving. The car just keeps on driving. Driver, pastor, says a little prayer for the stranded motorist on the way by. A little while later, another four-wheel drive comes along. It is a couple of uh, gray nomads with caravan, and they see the stranded motorist, and they, uh, at least they put down the window, and, sorry, mate, we're, we're not the RAA, and they keep going. After what seems like forever, a third vehicle comes along. It's a, it's a pretty beat-up old hatchback, and the driver in this vehicle sees the stranded motorist, and at this point, this guy is n- incoherent, and he's, he's practically passed out from dehydration. And so immediately, she stops. What's she doing there? Well, she's a medical student from New Zealand who took a semester off to explore the outback. And instantly, she recognizes the danger that this stranded driver is in. So she does her best to get him out of his vehicle and into her own and lay him down in the backseat of her own car. And she gives him some water and some leftover pavlova from home. And she covers him up with a blanket. And then she drives him over 100 kilometers to the nearest health clinic. And then before he even comes to, she gets a hold of this poor man's wife back in Adelaide, and she pays for her to fly up to be with him. Now, which one of these, the pastor, the gray nomad, or the uni student from New Zealand, was a neighbor to this man? The one who showed compassion. And Jesus says, go and do the same. The question we're seeking to answer in in, in hearing this story is this. Do I have to obey everything in the Bible? We'll come back to the story of the good Kiwi Samaritan in a moment. But just going back to the original story, the lawyer who approached Jesus, he wanted to know, have I done enough? Have I done enough to get God off my back? Have I done enough to get into heaven, to have eternal life? This is essentially the question of legalism. Maybe you've heard that term before. How little can I get away with doing to get across the line so that God is forced to honor his contract with me? Jesus doesn't answer the question. Instead, he challenges this whole way of thinking. He doesn't hook the guy on a technicality. He exposes everything that's wrong with his heart. The question, who is my neighbor, is actually his way of asking, who isn't my neighbor? Who do I not have to love? Who do I not have to care about? And if before we're too hard on this guy, we're, we're not all that different. All of us operate with some, because we're human, with some kind of cost-benefit scheme, always running. This software is sort of running in the backs of our minds. You know, because we only have a certain amount of time in the day. We only have a certain amount of money. We only have a certain amount of ability to protect and defend ourselves if something goes wrong. We work hard enough to get the job done, make the boss happy, but not too hard because who has time for that? We put in just enough effort in our friendships and our marriages so that nobody can accuse us of being a slouch. Does it make sense then that we would treat the Bible in a similar way? 
Whenever you come to a command in the Bible to obey or an example to follow, and this is an, exa- this is an example story where Jesus says, go and do likewise, go and do the same. I, I want to give you just four general things to consider, and this is not an exhaustive list. There, there are more than four, but these are four big ones. Before I do that, I, I do have to say this up front. And when we say this, I, I, we can't say this enough. The purpose of obedience is not to make God happy with you and me. It's not to get him off our backs. It's not to earn his favor. It's not to tick off a list of requirements that we need in order to get across the line or to get in. See, there's only one human being in the history of the world that obeyed every aspect of the law, every technicality, down to the smallest detail, and that was Jesus. He is the only truly good and obedient person that ever lived, the only righteous person. And he came and he died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And now you, if you're a Christian, if you're in him, you have been justified. You have been made right. You have been made perfect in him by faith, not by doing, not by the works of the law. So you don't have to worry about doing the minimum or even doing the maximum to inherit eternal life. Jesus already won that prize for you if you're in him. By faith in him, your name is already written into the will. Your place is already set at the table if you believe on the name of Jesus. Hear this, the purpose of obedience for Christians is not to earn God's favor, It's to live like someone who believes that you already have it. Let me say that again. The purpose of obedience for a Christian is not to earn God's favor. It's to live like someone who already has it. So whenever you come to a command or to obey or an example to follow in the Bible, I want you to consider just four things that will help us understand not if we're to follow or heed this command, but how. Okay? The first thing, and, and I think the most important thing here, is the issue of motive. And that's why Jesus told this story, the story of the Good Samaritan. The expert, the lawyer who asked Jesus the question, along with the priest and the, the Levite, or the church pastor and the gray nomads in the story, they wanted to do the minimum amount for the maximum benefit. How little can I get away with and still please God? The Samaritan and the Samaritan Kiwi did more than anyone could reasonably expect. And there is no, they, did, they, they, they worked for no benefit to themselves. There was nothing in it for them. See, worldly obedience is all about, let me adhere as closely as I can to the letter of the law so that I can, hand, in my hand, prove that I'm a good person. The law in the Old Testament said, for example, do not touch a dead body. Don't touch a dead body. You're unclean. So, so these, the priest and the Levite, they were very law-keeping religious people. And they could justify ignoring this guy and leaving him die because they, they thought, well, maybe he's just already dead. My conscience is clear. The law that we live by today does not specifically forbid um, all forms of double-dipping on your tax 
That's why we, that's what a loophole is, right? And so if it's, if, if it's not in the law specifically, well, it can't be wrong. That's what adhering to the letter of the law does. I can't, you can't possibly be responsible for every stranded motorist that you see on the side of the road. They probably did that to themselves. I mean, the RAA, the Centrelink, they'll take care of it. See, worldly obedience draws on worldly wisdom. It, it makes sense. We have limited resources, therefore doing the minimum amount for maximum benefit isn't selfish. It's smart. Godly obedience, in contrast to worldly obedience, isn't about whether or not we're technically obeying the rules. Godly obedience is about whether or not our hearts are a reflection of the heart of God. Godly obedience is about whether our hearts are a reflection of the heart of God. And here's the heart of God. Here's the heart of God as it applies to this situation. Exodus 34, verse 6. Katrina alluded to it in the, in the kid's spot just a moment ago. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. And then Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18 says this, compassion takes on a particular shape when it comes to vulnerable people, like say a stranded motorist or a refugee from another country. It says, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. In other words, one real world application of God's compassion is to provide relief to vulnerable people like orphans and widows and foreigners and anyone else who's relatively poor, relatively weak, and relatively susceptible to harm. That is the unchanging heart of God. And godly obedience is to conform our hearts to his heart. Obedience is a matter of the heart. And so whenever you come to a command in the Bible, the first question you sort of ask yourself is this, do I want to have the heart of God? Do I want to have the heart of God in this situation? Am I willing to give up something to have the heart of God? Listen to Paul's heart. He's just an ordinary Christian. This is in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please people, not to check a box, but to please God who examines our hearts. See, motives matter. If, if, if we don't approach the Bible with a heart that wants to please God, then you will always be looking to do the bare minimum, to justify yourself, just like all those people who left a man to die in the desert. And, and that's where obedience starts. If you don't remember anything else, you remember this. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God not only wills you to live a certain way, but he's actually given you a heart that is able to want to obey, that is able to obey. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. You've got to hear this because this is good news. If, if I just said, go away and obey, Do your best. God will sort it out. That would not be good news. Listen to what 1 John 5 says. It says, For this is what the love of God is, to keep his commands. Keep his commands. So that's, so far, that may or may not be good news. But then he says, And his commands are not a burden. Because everyone who has been born of God 
conquers the world. See, obedience is not some uh, like unachievable, you know, 100 million piece Lego set with no instructions. Now see, you have in your heart the Spirit of God. And whoever has the Spirit of God, whoever's been born of God, conquers the world. You, you can live in this way because he has given you the heart to obey. If you're like the lawyer in the story, though, combing the Bible, hoping to squeak by to do the bare minimum, then you, I want you to hear the word of Jesus to you today. His commands to you are not a burden. Not a burden. If you feel overwhelmed by the weight of your own sin and temptation, I want you to remember that Jesus said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The the, the weight of your sin is heavier than the weight of his yoke. And you can exchange it. You, you might think, oh, but, but that means giving up my personal autonomy. That means denying myself. That sounds hard, and yet Jesus reassures us and says, my yoke is easy. These commands are not burdensome. In fact, these things are the road to joy. Motive matters. Obedience starts in the heart. All right, the second thing is a matter of genre and context. And this, this is probably the, the part of this that is going to feel a little bit most like, like maybe like a Sunday school or a Bible college kind of lecture. But it is important because I think it's important for us to remember this stuff. Um, the Bible, as I said before, is a 66 books written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. Every book of the Bible is different in terms of who wrote it, why it was written, um, the way it was written, like the genre, that, which is just a book that means like the, the type of literature it is. Is this a poem? Is this history? Is it a letter? Is it um, uh, a vision? What, what is this kind of, you know, so it matters what it is in terms of how we read it and understand it. What type of literature are you reading? Like if you're reading a poem like one of the Psalms, you might run across symbolism and imagery, things that aren't meant to be understood literally. You know, God, you are a strong tower. doesn't mean he's actually made of bricks. It means you're like a strong tower. It means you're trustworthy and safe. Um, if you're reading a story, we, we went through Genesis over two years. And Genesis is got like a lot of the heroes of the faith are in Genesis, they do some awesome things. They do some things which are decidedly less awesome. And so let's, let's for example, think about the question of polygamy. If you've read Genesis, you know many of the heroes, the patriarchs, had more than one wife. Now we read that as, a, as history. It is not saying that there, because Abraham did or because Jacob did or David did, therefore it is okay. No. We talked about that with slavery a few weeks ago as well. Plenty of people who had slaves or who were slaves doesn't justify it for us. So you have to understand what kind of literature you're reading. Is this history? That means it's describing. It's not endorsing. It's not saying go and do likewise like Jesus did here. On the other hand, when you're reading, say, the Apostle Paul, 
who's writing a letter to the church and giving instructions, you read it as instructions. And he says, for elders of a church, for example, an elder of a church must be the husband of one wife. See, that's clear. So we read that, and then we look back at Abraham and go, okay, Abraham, that wasn't good. He was, he was doing the world's thing. He was doing the cultural thing then. All right? That's why it's important to understand what kind of literature you're reading. Another helpful principle in reading the Bible is about context. If you come across a command, is it explained in the verses around it? Does it fit in a wider series of commands, like the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount? Is it repeated in Scripture? This is important. A lot of the commands are repeated in the Old Testament and the New Testament by different authors. For example, the command to worship only God and not worship idols is repeated in almost every book, every section of the Bible. It's very important. It's very clear. The Bible itself provides a lot of helpful clues as to which commands are most important and which ones are meant to be obeyed at all people at all times versus those that are specific to a particular group of people. Genre and context matters. All right, next one. Church tradition matters. Now, for those of us who are Protestants in the room, we're not, we're not Catholic or Orthodox, that might sound, oh, where are we going with this? I thought we, we just have the Bible, we've got Jesus, that's enough. Don't, I don't, church tradition make me a little nervous. All right. Basic principles of reading a book will help us in this. Things like genre and context, but then maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not a big reader, so I, this won't help me. Well, you can, and you should learn to be a good reader of the Bible. And one of the best ways to do that is to utilize resources of people around you. Old ones, that have, like creeds, that have been around for hundreds of years, New ones, like, a, say, a, a basic study Bible that you could drop $50 on and have more theological resource and understanding of the Bible than probably the majority of Christians in the entire world. We have so, uh, just a wealth of knowledge and help and tools at our fingertips that is a gift to the church through just ordinary men and women like you and me. And we can take advantage of those resources. If you wonder, if you, you, know, you, you buy a $50 ESV study Bible, which I highly recommend, um, you um, will find all kinds of notes and references um, as to how to understand key verses in the Bible. So we, I sort of lightheartedly mentioned that in the New Testament, four times Paul says that we are to greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay, how do I, is that a command? Are we breaking that command every time we gather because we don't do that? Well, there's a good way to understand that. Probably getting a good study Bible is a good place to go for a question like that and go, yeah, that's actually something that was unique to that culture and we express hospitality and love for one another in different ways, okay? So that's how we can lean on 2,000 years of church history Lean on the people around us that have studied these things in the original languages and understand how to interpret and apply the commands of Scripture. Use the resources of the church. Use the creeds. Use the confessions. Use a study Bible. Use the elders and DG leaders and more mature, older believers in this church. Bring them your questions. Don't just assume, oh, that's a dumb question. No one's ever asked it before. I guarantee you 
There are hundreds of people have asked that question before. What, it doesn't matter what it is. I love questions. I love it when people say, I don't understand that verse. Can we have, I said, well, I may not understand it either. Let's get, let's get some resources and look into it. And let's understand this together because we want to know the heart of God. Church tradition matters. Lastly, the gospel matters. Motives, genre and context, church tradition. All these things will help us understand a command in scripture and how to obey it today. But I want to add this final matter. The gospel says, or the gospel of Jesus. Jesus said these words when he was alive. He said, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all these things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You might think, wow, how could I possibly keep all the, the thousands of commands in the Bible? Don't be discouraged. Jesus said he came to fulfill the law in himself. Think about all the laws in the Old Testament, if you've noticed them, to sacrifice to God, thank offerings, guilt offerings, burnt offerings. All of those were commands were fulfilled in Jesus. It's not that we now ignore those commands. It's not that they dropped out of the Bible. It's that they were fulfilled in Jesus, the once and final sacrifice. He's the reason that we don't now slaughter animals at church, thankfully. He's also the reason that you can eat bacon if you're into it. It's true. Thank him for it. He told us that the laws, all the laws about clean and unclean foods in the Old Testament, that those laws pointed us to the holiness and purity of God and his people. And Jesus came and he made us clean, not just on the outside, but in the inside. He cleansed our hearts and therefore we can receive all things with thanksgiving because our hearts are already clean. You see, the food laws were fulfilled in Jesus. It's not that we ignore the food laws. It's that we look to Jesus who fulfilled them. What food or drink can possibly separate you from the love of Jesus? None. See, we don't read the Old Testament laws as if today, as if Jesus never showed up. Every law is interpreted through the lens of the gospel and through the person of Christ. And so to know whether or not to obey a particular command, you've got to have Jesus and the gospel of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, at the very center. Here's the last thing I'll say. To answer our question, do I have to obey everything in the Bible? It comes down, it really comes down to what you believe the Bible is. Is the Bible a contract with God that if you keep your end, he'll keep his? So that both parties get what they want. Or is the Bible really an invitation. It is an invitation to life. A life that is beyond your wildest dreams. A life that is far beyond anything you could achieve or work or build for yourself. Do you believe that the Bible is the book, the one book that unlocks the window to the holy heart of God that you can peer into his heart and not disintegrate into nothing? Because if that's true, and if you believe that to be true, then you don't approach the Bible and the commands thinking, do I have to? But God, help me to. It won't so much be, but who really is my neighbor anyway? 
but it's how can I love my neighbor, whoever they are? One of my favorite episodes in the life of Jesus is this little interaction between him and his disciples in John chapter 6. Jesus has just preached one of the hardest, weirdest sermons that has ever been preached in the history of the world. Here's a line from that sermon. Jesus said, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He did not qualify that. He did not say just kidding. He did not say this is an illustration. That's what he said, straight up. And how do we know that it was weird and hard to hear? Because the majority of the people that were in the room literally got up and walked out. That's never happened to me. I've never preached a sermon where the majority of the people in the room got up and walked out. But that happened to Jesus. It sounds like Jesus is preaching cannibalism here, and you're like, what is going on? I, I, I can't obey. That is too much, Jesus. I cannot obey to that extent. And Jesus looks at the, his inner circle of 12, and he says, are you, you're not going away too, are you? And at that point, Peter opened his mouth, which doesn't always go well. And he says, Lord, where will we go? To whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, that's a, that's a bold statement. That's a, that's a statement of faith, right? Because it doesn't mean Peter's like, oh yes, I know how to exegete. I fully understand what you have just said. I fully understand that when you said, eat my flesh, drink my blood, that you're looking forward to the cross and, and, and to communion and, 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 and I'm going to parse the difference between all the different views of what that means. No. He had none of that. He didn't understand any of it. What he had was faith. What he had was saying, Jesus, I know your heart. I don't understand what you've just said, but I, and I don't understand how I'm going to do that thing, but I, I know you, and I'm with you. See, that's what the lawyer didn't understand. Eternal life is not what you earn after a hard day's work. Eternal life is being in the presence of God forever. That's what it is. It's, it's every word that flows from his mouth. Every word is life. Every word will keep you. Every word will instruct you. Every word will speak life into and healing into your soul. To whom will we go? When the call to follow him is hard, may the Spirit of God who writes his words on weak and fragile hearts like ours, may he grant us wisdom, knowledge, patience, the good sense to stake our very lives and our decisions and our hope on these words and on the God who breathed all of them into being. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is truth. God, would you come as you do and you, only you can do, guide us into all truth. Lord, as we come to the table today, Lord, may this moment once again remind us of Jesus, the one who said my, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Lord, would we be transported to just where you are 
Lord, that we might see you and that we might long for the day, again, that we are seated around your table eating real food and drinking real drink with you in your kingdom. God, we know that we can only be at that table because you have done it. You obeyed everything. You met all the requirements. Not so that we can just lay around and not care, but so that we could have your spirit, that we could have your very heart, that we could see your heart and reflect it, that we could go and do likewise. Lord, teach us. Teach us your ways. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.